five, four, three, two, one. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside You, the college sports podcast. I'm your host, Xavier Audic, and we are back for Group of Five Wednesday. It is Wednesday, November 14th, 2018, and it certainly is the most wonderful time of year. It's that part of the year where we're in November, which means the college football playoffs are right around the corner. The conference championship games are beginning to finalize themselves. And for basketball, we've reached that point when we're past the initial cream puff games. The big tournaments of the preseason, the holiday season begin this weekend. And it is a great time to be a college sports fan. So let's get right into it. First things first, as usual, I was right and I was wrong. The basketball edition, I was right that LSU would defeat Memphis. Not the imagined start for Penny Hardaway's team, losing to Will Wade's team 85-76. to Skyler Mays, 19 points, 2 rebounds, 1 assist. And for Will Wade, who really needed to distance himself from the pay-for-play scandal, coming home in a big way with a win over the Tigers. Then I was wrong that Xavier would beat Wisconsin. Final score there, 77-68. The big story, Ethan Happ, 30 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. For a guy who was basically told to work on his game, develop more into an outside presence to have the skill set he appears to be creating, plus his 6'10 height looking like he's going to turn himself into a lotto pick at the end of this year. For the Musketeers, Najee Marshall, 24 points, 13 rebounds, 1 assist. Certainly a case with the Musketeers where we saw how much they missed a guy like Trayvon Blewett. They very much had relied on Blewett for scoring whatever they needed for the last few years. Without him, the Musketeers appeared to struggle. A big win for Greg Gard's team. Winning in the Cintas Center is never easy. Very impressive road win for the Badgers. Then, I was right that Marquette would lose to Indiana. Final score there, 96-73. The Hauser Brothers East had 18 points. Certainly did their best, but this was all about Romeo Langford. 22 points. The freshman very much impressed me with his ability to get to the rasp, shield the ball, and score after contact. Also, I thought it was a very interesting opportunity to get to see the Hoosiers fans that fan base is excited to see what this team can do this year and the combination of Langford and Fitzner very impressive Fitzner showing off not only that he could score points in the paint but also showing off his long ball a couple of very nice three-pointers going to be a very interesting team to watch this year very much a fan of this team seeing kind of what they can do also what impressed me was just kind of the physical difference you saw between these two squads Indiana's kind of just bigger skill set and ability to score points in the paint certainly made the difference as Marquette was forced to claw their way back most of the game. Very impressive win for this team. Going to be interesting to see what Langford does going forward. I'd like to see a little bit more of him have to utilize his outside shot, see what he can do off the dribble, but a great start for this team and very impressive in his first showing. Then, I was wrong that Villanova would defeat Michigan. Final score there, 73-46. Not really a game. For Jay Wright's team, unfortunately, Villanova being blown out at home in their new basketball arena. Certainly for Mer- for Michigan, this was a very impressive game for Jim Bailey's team. Definitely a different looking team than last year. This team very much wanted to get out in transition. They wanted to run. They played a lot of man. They showed off some four game. Certainly a very impressive team going to give a lot of teams in that Big Ten trouble. Charles Matthews, 19 points, four rebounds and three blocks. Just a great all around effort for Bailey's team. And for a team that last year that kind of made its name off of its zone and its pacing to then come out and look the way they did, very much impressed me. Jay Wright, if you missed it, you should go check out the ESPN profile they did on Villanova this year, kind of talking about how in the past they very much focused on a progression of they have one or two lottery picks and then they have a couple guys they think will fill in after them. 
and kind of how that platoon system has really built Villanova into the powerhouse. But unfortunately, with the loss of guys like Dante DiVincenzo and Mikhail Bridges, they're not kind of at a loss. Young team going to take some time to really gain that experience they need. Pascal did have a very nice dunk, which did bring alive that fan base. But at that point, the game was really out of reach. But so you can never count Jay Wright's team out. They'll certainly gain experience this year. Looking at the Big East right now with their loss and Xavier's loss in the same night, very much an impressive and interesting conference looking at it. Could be a year where we see a school like St. John's or possibly even Georgetown kind of come out of nowhere and win the league. Speaking of Georgetown, I had the opportunity to watch their game at Illinois. While I didn't pick the game, the Hoyas pulling off the upset on the road, 88 to the final score. Very much an interesting opportunity to kind of see what head coach Patrick Ewing was going to put together in his second year. Illinois early on looked like they were going to control it. They caused some problems with that zone press they were running after makes. Andrew Feliz very much looked like he was going to put the game away after he had those three crucial takeaways, one after the other after the other. He was very much a pest. Uh, caused a lot of frustration for the Hoyas guards. Pickett had a couple of dumb fouls just kind of he was because he was so frustrated. Uh, and Dustin Menus pouring on 25 points, one rebound, and one assist. But in the end, this Hoya team got the job done. Certainly a very young team. Akinjo finished with 19 points, three rebounds, seven assists. Matt McClung probably had the turning point play of the game when he picked the pocket of one of the Illinois guards and then had a huge dunk, kind of took that Hoyas bench and brought them alive. But certainly a very limited team, having had a lot of shooting rows, least shooting woes recently. Matt McClellan, I believe now is 0 for 11 from three-point range, going to take some time. Also, Georgetown's out-of-bounds plays really did not impress me. They kind of ran one laxatazical and turned the ball over, and then later in the game, at a very crucial moment, they turned it over again. Going to need to work on that going forward, but this appears to be a very young upstart team. I think they're going to beat a lot more teams than they were predicted to this year, and it should be fun to watch, but still probably one more year away from truly competing with those big teams. I think they need a little bit bigger presence in the post area as well as to shoot the ball a little bit better from outside, but should still be very fun to watch. Moving over to football in midweek Maction, Buffalo having a chance to close out the Mac East tonight. Unfortunately, they did not get the job done against Frank Solich's Ohio team. Solich showing that at 74 years old, he still has plenty of fight in him. Final score there, 52-17. to 17. Very much a game of turnovers. Early on, Buffalo had three, allowing Ohio to score 17 points off of those turnovers. And then the combination of A.J. Ouellette and Poppy White just absolutely ran roughshod over the Buffalo. Over Buffalo. So looking at this game, I thought it was kind of interesting in that having been able to watch Buffalo a couple weeks ago against Miami, Ohio, you saw a team that was very unbalanced. While their offense appeared to be a juggernaut, I can pretty much score it. Well, their defense had holes. We saw Ohio continuously take advantage of those safeties this game, which looked weak in that game against Miami, Ohio. Looked like a team that if they had a slow night like they did tonight, could be vulnerable, and unfortunately that's the case. Still, though, Buffalo still controls their destiny in that MAC East. However, with the victory, Ohio now is not conceivably out of potentially locking up that MAC East as well. So we'll continue to monitor, but I still think Buffalo wins the MAC East, even if it, it takes them a week longer than expected to do so. So... That moves us along to the Heisman Trophy. Another interesting week in that regard, in that for the first time ever, Kyler Murray has begun to finally overtake Tua Tagovailoa a little bit. This occurred after Tua had his first human-like game of the season, 164 yards and one touchdown and one interception against Mississippi State. 
the Crimson Tides defense again blanking the Bulldogs. Very impressive showing for Nick Saban's team as they continue to look like the best team in all of college football. But if you're a Tide fan, you have to be worried about Tagovailoa's knee injury. Again, he was forced to leave the game after being struck in the knee. He set out the entire fourth quarter and fortunately with Citadel and Auburn remaining, though it looks like Tagovailoa will be okay to finish the season. Already, Saban was asked if they might consider sitting Tua against Citadel, but he said that will not be the case and he will play. If he were to, let's say, injure himself and some type of freak accident against Citadel and be unable to play that Auburn game, then there's a chance with Murray having this weekend and next weekend to really show off his skill set, particularly next weekend when they go to West Virginia to play the Mountaineers then he could potentially overtake him and win the Heisman. But I still think this is two us to lose. So he's still my number one. Right behind him, as I mentioned a second ago, Kyler Murray beating Oklahoma State 349 yards, only one touchdown though. Really a question at this point of whether he had just had catch Tua. Certainly of the other names, he looks like the guy that has the best chance to do so just because of the storyline of him already having been a top MLB draft pick, coming back to finish out his last year of football before pursuing a baseball career professionally. But this makes it very interesting for me in that Oklahoma has Kansas and West Virginia remaining. Kansas and West Virginia are both going to give the Heisman Trophy voters an opportunity to gauge Murray against fellow Heisman Trophy candidate Will Greer. Greer against Kansas had three interceptions. Also, that West Virginia game is in West Virginia. That could give Murray a final nice road win going into Big Ten play could really allow him to separate himself from Tua, who even with his phenomenal performances, you could say might have faced a slightly tad worse competition than Murray this year. Also, a very interesting thing here is that Oklahoma State team. Remember, Oklahoma State beat Boise State, who looks like they have an outside shot of winning the Mountain West Mountain Division, as well as Texas. And they've got a shot to upset West Virginia this weekend, although I don't see that happening. So, Murray's still very much in the running. He has the best chance of catching Tua, but realistically, I don't see that happening, barring a very unforeseen and unfortunate injury to Tagovailoa. So then at number three, I got Will Greer. This last weekend against TCU, 343 yards, three touchdowns to one interception. Again, his remaining competitions against Kansas, excuse me, his remaining games are against Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, a team that could certainly catch the Mountaineers. Mike Gundy's team's already done it to Texas once, and they came very close to doing it to Oklahoma in Bedlam this last weekend. But if anything, this team has shown that its strength is not its defense, but its offense. If they get Justice Hill back and he's 100%, that game could get interesting. But realistically, I just see the Mountaineers outscoring them. And then, like I said, next Friday at home, they get Oklahoma. Greer certainly was out of the running for a couple of weeks after that bad performance against Iowa State. Since then, he has rebounded and he has looked good. You could arguably say that he might be the most NFL-ready prospect in this current class of quarterbacks, but I just don't see him catching Tagovailoa. Then at number four, Gardner Minshew. This last weekend against a floundering Colorado team, 335 yards and two touchdowns. Unfortunately for Minshew, barring that performance during college game day, the Cougars only have Arizona and UW left in the Apple Cup. Both of those teams kind of flying under the radar at this moment, although the Huskies are ranked. 
But again, I don't see him catching Tua. And then lastly, a new addition, Quinnen Williams. Williams really has been doing it all year for the Crimson Tides defense. But in the last two games, he has really showed what he can really do. Very much coming alive on screen. Three and a half sacks and 16 tackles over those last two games. Very much the reason why the Crimson Tide have been able to blank Mississippi State and LSU in the last two weekends. And he's a guy that even with all of the other stellar defensive linemen in this 2018 class, could work his way up into being one of the top drafts come the 2019 NFL draft. So, again, Tua Tagovailoa's race to lose at this point. Barring an injury, he probably does take it. But if anyone is going to catch him, I think it will be Kyler Murray. That moves us along to the top stories in college football. And with the release of yesterday's third college football rankings, we're now getting into this situation of kind of what-ifs where we have to look at all the potential scenarios of how either your team could get in or a team could lose so that your team could get in, etc. And one of the things that I found interesting is kind of this question of whether Notre Dame, if they were able to run the table, could still make it into the playoff. Some have already kind of pondered that maybe they are not able to make it, the reason being that lack of a championship game. I don't see that happening. Going into the season, certainly a lot of people questioned the Irish's schedule because on paper it looked like it was not one of their stronger schedules. But then when you look at it, you have to remember, okay, they beat Michigan at home to open the season. Michigan now looking like the best team in the entire Big Ten. That defense is number one in the nation. Also, the offense finally has figured itself out. And they've got a top 10 showdown with Ohio State in a couple of weeks. Then they beat Wake Forest, which beat NC State this last weekend. No one really saw that happening. A team that can certainly get you, and that's without their starting quarterback. Then a victory over Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. Certainly that Virginia Tech team has kind of floundered a little bit since then, but still a tough place to win. Then they beat Pitt, who against all odds is first in the ACC Coastal. Pat Narduzzi's squad entered the year with a lot of hype. Certainly people were a little concerned going into it. I even saw some people questioning whether it might be time for the Panthers to move on from Narduzzi, but they are only one one way from locking up the Coastal and then meeting Clemson, and which will be an absolute destruction. Then Navy in San Diego, though, certainly another tough place to win on the road. Very much a home game for the midshipmen. And then Northwestern, who is the Big Ten West champs this two weekends ago. And now they've got Syracuse and then USC. Syracuse, remember, at Yankee Stadium, USC on the road. So really finishing their season with two road games. Certainly, even with USC being down, and if they were to lose that game, that could give the committee the out they need to leave the Irish out, but looking at their schedule and who they've played, this is one of the benefits of Notre Dame not being in a conference is they really can stretch themselves out geographically and conference-wise. They played a wide swath of schedule. It'd be hard for me to say that many other conference champions have even played the caliber of schedule that Notre Dame has this year, and if they were to run the table, even without having a conference championship game, they deserve to get in. And I think if they were to lose to Syracuse, you could make the argument that an 11-1 Notre Dame team should still get in. However, if they lose to USC, then maybe they are should be left out. But like I said, if they run the table, they should be in. So that moves us along to possibly the second biggest graduate transfer question on the market right now, which is where does former Clemson starter Kelly Bryant end up? In the weeks that have followed Cle- Kelly Bryant's leaving Clemson, we've kind of had stories here and there about where he's taken his official visits. Some of the names, not that surprising, Arkansas, Mizzou, UNC, Mississippi State, all teams that are either losing their quarterback, Fitzgerald leaving Mississippi State, 
Drew Locke leading Mizzou, or teams that are struggling right now, Arkansas, UNC. But a couple of surprising ones, one of them being Auburn. Jared Stidham, you'll remember, is a junior. He entered the season with some saying that he might be the best quarterback in all of the SEC. Obviously, the Tigers have not met expectations, but to his credit, he did lose his top receivers before the season even began, and Eli Stove and Will Hastings. Also, the offensive line hasn't been great, and the running backs have certainly taken a step down with the loss of guys like Carrion Johnson. So, for a guy like Stidham, who I think now has to come back for another year to really protect himself, get the kind of money that he probably deserves as a first-round, or at the very least, a mid-second-round pick, he needs to come back and protect himself. If he were to leave now, I really think he'd be doing himself an injustice, and he'd just kind of be in the crop of kind of above average quarterbacks that are coming out this year but for them to then go to kelly bryant maybe tips our hand and excuse me for them to host kelly bryant then maybe tips our hand that he is in fact going to leave at the end of the year so that's kind of an interesting subplot and the other storyline being miami malik rosie is a senior so he's gone but in Kazi perry who very much was kind of a guy who was heralded you know he did redshirt last year and he's played a little bit this year kind of been hit or miss but for them to be so willing to try and get Bryant to come along tells me that they really do not believe in Perry and that Mark Rick's staff is looking for another option. So we'll continue to monitor it. Sources are saying that Arkansas remains the best and most likely option for Bryant, given the fact that Chad Morris, Arkansas's coach, was on staff at Clemson when they recruited Bryant. He, they have a previous connection. Also, if you've heard the stuff that Chad Morris is trying to do with that Razorbacks offense, Kelly Bryant's skill set would seem to fit in that, that kind of up-tempo scheme. But certainly then you brings into question Ty Story, the current Razorback starter. So we'll continue to monitor this, but this is the kind of situation we're not going to get into with these graduate transfers. And these are the some of the names that have already come up with regards to Bryant. Just imagine the names that might be in play when Jalen Hurts comes on the market in just a couple of months. So that moves along to the most recent college football power rankings. I want to take a moment here to highlight Northwestern. Certainly got off to a slow start. 0-4 to start the season. Losses to Purdue, Duke, Akron, and Michigan. But since then have turned it around. They recently locked up the Big Ten West in a year where most people were picking Wisconsin to do so. And really this is kind of just a story of attrition and Pat Fitzgerald staying along and believing in this program. For many years, I can recall Fitzgerald constantly being linked to other names. He stayed. He was able to get his assistance paid more like he had hoped all along. Furthermore, if you haven't seen it, you should go check out the photos of their new football complex. And they've faced some adversity this year to top things off. Jeremy Larkin, their star rusher, was lost for the entirety of his career with a neck injury. Also, Clayton Thorson started the year coming off a knee injury, an ACL he suffered in their bowl game last year. Since then, though, they've righted the ship. They've run five conference games in a row. They're only lost bank to Notre Dame, which is a non-conference team. And I believe that this is the type of breakthrough performance that could certainly mean big things for this program going forward. Also, because of kind of the attrition and adversity they've already faced, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Ohio State or Michigan just walks over them. Certainly, both teams have shown that they're weak in some areas. Michigan's offense, while it's looked better, I think would bode well better for Northwestern just because they kind of run a similar situation of running the ball and kind of playing field position, doing the right things. Ohio State, though, conversely, their defense is certainly not what it looked like to start the season. They've certainly taken a step back after they lost Nick Bosa. So not a for sure thing that whoever comes out of that West, whether it is Ohio State or Michigan, they just walk over this Northwestern team. 
And then also kind of this is a story of what happens when a coach believes in a school and gives them a chance to really catch up. And if you're Jeff Brom now, who many people are saying will be leaving almost immediately for that Louisville job, a Big Ten West foe, maybe you're also sitting here going, you know what, maybe I can do that at Purdue. Purdue obviously already has better facilities than Northwestern. Some saying they're within the top five of all of college football. So maybe he takes that similar Pat Fitzgerald route where he just likes the situation. He believes in the program and he's there for the long haul. So that moves us along uh, to the college football rankings. Northwestern, like I said, ranked for the first time all season. Top 10 unchanged for the first time ever in college football rankings, given that no team lost. Still have a couple of issues, though. LSU at number seven, obviously still a concern. But what are you going to do? Looking at some of the other teams, given that this is Group of Five Wednesday, the top 25 is rounded out with three Group of Five teams. Utah State at 20, three Cincinnati at 24, and Boise State at 25. Utah State, you'll recall, only lost the season to Michigan State which even with them having suffered a loss to Ohio State this last weekend has still beaten some pretty good teams. Cincinnati, they're only lost to Temple. They've got a huge college game day showdown against Central Florida this weekend with huge American East ramifications. And then Boise State coming off an impressive victory over Fresno State at home. So going to be very interesting to see what happens with these three teams going forward. Looking at the teams ranked above them, I think you could definitely make a case that At the very least, Utah State should be ranked higher than Washington and Utah. Washington has three losses to Auburn, Oregon, and Cal. Furthermore, Jake Browning and that offense, for whatever reason, just haven't seemed to get it it clicking, have kind of regressed a little bit in the last few weeks, although they are still setting up a huge Apple Cup showdown with the Washington State Cougars. Then Utah, they've got three losses to Washington, Washington State, and Arizona State although they did pick up a big victory this last weekend over Oregon without star quarterback Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss, who were both lost for the season. It'd be difficult for me to say that with with Jason Skelly under center that the Utes could beat Utah State, Cincinnati, or Boise State at this point. And then at number 20, we've got Boston College. They've got losses to Purdue, NC State at Clemson. NC State, remember, lost to Wake Forest this last weekend. Mississippi State at 21 with losses to Florida, Kentucky, LSU, and Alabama, and then Northwestern at 22, with losses to Purdue, Duke, Akron, Michigan, and Notre Dame. So certainly a situation where the top 10 have kind of remained unchanged. The committee appears content on leaving it that way, barring an upset or two. The middle of the pack, though, is still a little bit questionable, as some teams, I think, are a little bit overranked. And then kind of that tier above, Those last three group of five teams to me looks like these are teams that we believe in, even if their record doesn't show it. So the committee certainly appears to be sticking to that. Our job is to rank the 25 best teams, kind of regardless of scenario uh, motto. But we'll see what happens from here. And that moves us along to what are some people calling the death scenario, which is what were to happen if Alabama were to lose to Georgia in the SEC championship game, even if they run the table the rest of the season. In that case, then do we have a situation where Georgia is one, Clemson is two, Notre Dame is three, and Alabama is four? If that were to be the case, that would mean that three power five conferences, the Big 12, Pac-12, and Big 10 were left out of the playoff. Could this be the boost that we need to finally get an eight-team playoff as college football fans? Certainly an interesting question. For the last few years, the committee has kind of consistently said that they have no intent on expanding. 
and with the Big 12 having been left out of the first playoff in the Pac-12 last year, kind of showing that it would take more than just one conference to really get things in line. I know that the American athletic director has kind of come out this last week and said that he himself would lobby for an expansion because he doesn't feel schools like UCF are getting the respect they deserve. But I just don't see the group of fives haggling to be enough to really get that change. It will need to come from the power five level. And with this year, if the Big 12, Pac-12, and Big 10 were all to align and say that they demanded an 18 playoff, I think that's finally the change that we could get, especially if they could get the Big 10 involved. You know, the Big 12, I think, is kind of always already looked at as the little sister of the other Power 5 conferences. The Pac-12 appears to have been okay with them having been left out last year and potentially again this year, even with Rob Mullins, Oregon's athletic director, being on the committee. But the Big 10, who could be looking at a situation where a one-loss Michigan team that's won 12 games in a row is left out of the playoff, I think that would rankle a lot of college football fans and a lot of people within the Big 10. The Big Ten already has some issues with the SEC, given that they play nine conference games compared to the SEC's eight. Like I've said before, I believe the SEC's eight-game schedule allows them to essentially have two bye weeks. If you look at Alabama, they're playing the Citadel this weekend, an FCS team. For that to happen this late in the season, to me, is just patternly unfair. And really the only way to get the SEC to then go to nine conference games would be for the committee to require them to do so by leaving out one, if not two SEC schools. And unfortunately, I just don't see that happening. If you want to see how much the the committee believes in the SEC, again, go back to LSU's number seven ranking, even with two losses. And they've got one loss, Ohio State, at number 10 behind them, as well as West Virginia. So we'll be interesting to see what happens here. But maybe this could finally be the situation that we needed to get that 18 playoff. However, I am not holding my breath. So that moves us along to a subject that I have avoided talking about up until now, which is the Ball family. LaMelo Ball, the youngest Ball, making news last week that he will re-enroll in high school with his focus on earning a degree and then eventually hoping to play college basketball. He's going to be joining Spire Academy in Ohio The reason he's able to join Spire Academy is because it is a prep school which does not play against any of the Ohio-affiliated high schools. Therefore, they're able to set their own eligibility rules. Certainly an interesting move for LaMelo. Remember, he initially had committed to UCLA like his two older brothers, but then after there was a falling out between his dad, LaVar, and the Chino High School head coach, his dad decided to take his son out of high school basketball Since then, he's played professionally for a Lithuanian professional team and the JBA. But it appears now that he will return to high school, saying that kind of he misses out on the high school experience and he wants to set himself up to play college ball. Now, with that being said, LaMelo will certainly have to go through a couple of issues if he does, in fact, want to get eligible. Certainly, they're going to be want to look into whether he was compensated for either of that time. If he were, there'd be a legitimate question of whether he has eligibility still. Also, with regards to his ties to the Big Baller brand shoe company, his name was put on one of the iterations of their shoes they did. That could result in it being unfairly utilized for advertisement. And then the biggest question mark being that he hired an agent. His father hired his brother, older brother Lonzo's agent to seek a professional deal for him and older brother Leangelo. So 
one thing on that regard is that in this next class, one of the changes that the NCAA has made is that players that are designated as elite by USA Basketball, which most have said Lamelo had fallen, are able to sign a contract going into their senior year of high school with an agent. But given that these infractions occurred before this new rule went into effect, will Lamelo be eligible? To be honest, it doesn't wouldn't really surprise me if you were able to earn his eligibility back, whether he has to do it by paying a fine or sitting out a number of games or what have you. But I think this is just another case of what happens when a father puts their own desires over that of their children. You know, one of the teams that I found that was interesting that was left out from LaMelo's list of schools that he was interested in, those being Duke, UNC, Kansas, Kentucky, and Michigan State is UCLA. UCLA, remember, is where both he and his two older brothers were all committed to. He was very intent on joining his brothers in Westwood and hopefully playing with older brother LiAngelo like he had in high school before. But now, unfortunately, that does not look like the case. Certainly, the older brother's time at UCLA did not end well following his being dismissed from the team due to the theft that occurred in China while they were over there on an overseas trip. But, you know, if you want to look at a father who has done a great job setting their sons up, I think John Brown, the father of former Notre Dame player Equinamia St. Brown, Stanford player Osiris St. Brown, and USC player Amon Ross St. Brown has done a tremendous job. Make no mistake that part of the reason why all three Ball brothers ended up in Westwood was so that LeVar could keep his eye on them. And this just shows me that LaMelo now has kind of said, okay, dad, I tried your way. Now I'm going to do me. I like that he's back in school. I like that he's kind of taking things into his own hands. And I hope he does able to get regain his eligibility because I do feel like he was probably done a disservice here by his father. But We'll have to see. Certainly an uphill batter for LaMelo, but not impossible to say the least. So we'll continue to monitor that. One last thing on that, though, is what schools might be actually willing to take him. Certainly, I think that you will be able to find a school out there who would love to have a ball brother on their roster. Kind of like a situation with Ben Simmons ending up at LSU a couple of years ago. But will Coach K be willing to accept him? I don't know. Roy Williams probably more of a possibility. John Calabari, probably even more of a possibility in Bill Self, probably a definitely. But I think some schools just kind of naturally will be turned off by the Ball family and not show any interest in LaMelo, even if he could help their basketball team. So that moves us along to previews. Like I said earlier, we are now at the point where we've started to get the benefit of some of these preseason tournaments, one of them occurring Thursday and Friday of this week, the 2K Empire Classic in Madison Square Garden. Round one, like I previewed a couple of days ago, Syracuse taking on UConn. I've got Jim Beheim's team pulling off the victory there. And then in round two, Oregon taking on Iowa. Oregon, though, still without one of their better players. And I think because of the Hawkeyes pull it off. However, then I've got the Orangemen over the Hawkeyes in the championship. And then Oregon over UConn in the con- consolation game. Then that moves along to round one of the Maui Invitational. Certainly a lot of blue blood programs in this. First game, I have Bruce Pearl's Auburn team over Xavier and Duke over San Diego State. Duke right now just kind of flying on all cylinders, although as I've said before, they are not unbeatable. But I just don't see San Diego State as having the firepower to match them. Then we've got Arizona over Iowa State and Gonzaga over Illinois. Illinois, like I said earlier, definitely a game that can cause problems for you in transition. They're kind of aggressive style of play 
will give a lot of teams difficulty. But I think Rue Hachimura's ability to kind of score in the paint and force that Illinois team to defend and play in the half court is what makes the difference here. So that will then set up Auburn versus Duke and Arizona Gonzaga in round two. And I will preview those games on Monday. So back to football then. Since this is Group of Five Wednesday, let's get into some of the top Group of Five games this week. Starting tomorrow, we've got Tulane traveling to Houston. Houston favored by 10 points there. This game certainly would have had a lot more high profile a couple of weeks ago. But ever since Ed Oliver has been out these last few weeks, the Cougars have stumbled, even with Eric King emerging as one of the best Group of Five quarterbacks in all of college football. Ed Oliver, though, still going to be out. I saw one story today saying that he could be out for good and just be focusing now on the NFL draft like his fellow defensive line counterpart Nick Bosa. Whether that remains true or not remains to be seen, but Tulane showing a bit of resurgence after Justin McMillan, the LSU transfer, took over. They beat ECU 24-18 and are in a three-game win streak. Houston, on the other hand, lost to Temple 59-49, and this will be a battle back and forth between McMillan and King. I think the Cougars still pull off the victory here, although I don't see them covering. Very much could be a shootout, and I could see Houston winning on a field goal in the final minutes, but should be a very fun Thursday night matchup. Then in the college game, the game of the week, Cincinnati traveling to Central Florida. Central Florida coming favored by a touchdown there, coming off a victory over Navy 35 to 24. Cincinnati coming off a victory over South Florida 39 to 23. Again, that victory would have made more in the last few weeks. And we cannot say overstate enough how great of a job Luke Fickle has done. In his second year coaching the Bearcats, they look like a completely different team. And I do believe that Desmond Ritter, the combination of Desmond Ritter and Michael Warren in the future will set up the Bearcats for great success. But unfortunately right now, I still think the Golden Knights get the job done. Mackenzie Milne and co. can score at will, even if their defense is a cause for concern. And I think they still pull off the victory here in what should be a very fun game. Then another game that would have meant a lot more a couple of weeks ago, San Diego State traveling to Fresno State. Fresno State favored by 12.5. San Diego State coming off a couple of close losses, and unfortunate losses at that to Nevada and then UNLV. UNLV, keep in mind, was winless in conference play up until last weekend. The Aztecs certainly entered this year with a lot of hype and expectation following the success they had last season, but they've certainly shown that they missed the power running style of Rashad Penny. Also, they lost starting quarterback Chase Christian Chapman to injury, as well as starting running back Jawan Washington. And as well as Ryan Agnew and Chase Jasmine have tried to fill in, they just appeared to be struggling a little bit this year. Fresno State also coming off a loss to Boise State. Certainly a tough loss for the Bulldogs, but I still think they get the job done here. However, I think this will also be a fun game. Even with this game likely meaning that Fresno State ends up winning the Mountain West West Division, it should be just fun football and a lot of entertainment, and which should be another fun late game. Then UNLV t- traveling to Hawaii. Hawaii favored by six and a half. There, UNLV, like I said, coming off that victory over San Diego State. Hawaii though losing to Utah State, fifty-six to seventeen, and the Rainbow Warriors team has certainly slowed since Cole McDonald and Cole started out six and one. They've lost four in a row now. Definitely that defense has been an Achilles heel. Really just don't really stop anyone. And for that reason, I think the running Rebels pull off the upset here. I've got UNLV. And then lastly, in another game that would have meant a little more a couple of weeks ago, South Florida traveling to Temple. Temple favored by 13.5. South Florida coming off a loss to Cincy. Charlie Strong team started out undefeated. Looked like they had a lot of promise. But in the last few weeks, just have kind of struggled to get the job done. Did not show up last weekend. 
looked very slow out of the gate, and it certainly cost them. Temple, on the other hand, coming off a victory over Houston, even with their slow start to the season, still a very tough American team, and I think the Owls get the job done here. So that's it for me today, guys. Again, another huge weekend of college sports, a lot of fun both in basketball and in football. Like I said, it is the most wonderful time of the year, and we're going to have a lot of things to talk about going forward. So I will be back on Monday to discuss this weekend's matchups and highlights from both basketball and football. And we will get into it as always with first things first, I was right and I was wrong. So that's it for me today, guys. Again, it is Wednesday, November 10th, 2018. You guys have a great one and I'll see you soon. Bye.